0: Welcome to the Emotional Sobriety Workshop. My name is Steve, and I am a compulsive overeater. And your, Thank you, and your moderator this morning. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic devices be turned off now. We remind you that this session is being recorded and all speakers. There is a sharing component and there'll be a sign in sheet if you wish to come up and share after the uh, main panel present presentations. We ask that you sign the uh, uh, release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. Uh, The the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent region two or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. The format for today is as follows. We will have three speakers who will share 20 minutes each followed by three minute open pitches until the end of the session. The topic for this session is emotional sobriety and the following is a reading from Voices of Recovery, March 5th. One day as we discussed a difficult relationship problem, my sponsor said, if you're doing it to please him, you're back in your disease. That statement helped me see that on the emotional side of my recovery, God was rarely my higher power. Sometimes my higher power was my husband, sometimes it was the immature parts of my personality, sometimes it was people whose acceptance and approval I wanted. These people, including my childish self, had power over me to control my thoughts, feelings, and actions. I began to see that even though I was physically abstinent, I wasn't emotionally abstinent. I still tried to control things, such as the outcome of events and the behavior and feelings of those around me. Maybe that was why I lacked serenity, and my life seemed out of control and overwhelming. I felt discouraged, but the line from For Today assured me, quote, a problem is solved and immediately there is hope that an even tougher one will go the same way, end quote. I began riding my way through the steps to learn the difference between compulsive emotional behavior and emotional abstinence. Today, God helps me to be emotionally abstinent. I do the footwork and God does for me what I cannot do for myself. So with that, I want to introduce our first of three panel presenters today, Carol from Death Valley. <applause> <laughs> be careful with
1: them. I carried them around in my purse for a long time and finally decided to put them in an envelope in my calendar because they're falling apart, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Carol and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I've been in programs since September 12, 1983, which is 34 years. Um, I've been abstinent since September 30th, 1989, which is 19 years. And if you do the math, that's 15 years when I was on and off and on and off and relapse and on and on and off. Food was my coping tool. Um, broken coper, if things went wrong, I just wanted to fix myself with food. Um, and that that bled over until I learned how to um, develop other coping skills which OA taught me now when I came into program of course the AA literature was all we had Um, and now we've got a new 12 and 12 and when the AA 4th edition came out it was called the resentment edition because they changed so much and I'm hoping this doesn't I don't want to call this the resentment condition, the addition, but I went through looking for some of my favorite quotes on balance. <laughs> They're not underlined in here. <laughs> anyway, so I, I went to my first OA meeting in um, San Francisco, um, probably 1978 or 79. It was sometime well be- about five years before I finally Decided, this program was for me because back then I went to the first meeting and I didn't like the God talk I took care of Carol God took care of famine pestilence and major disasters and I was a major disaster but I just didn't know it <laughs> <laughs> so um, man I was so unhappy and I hated myself but I got, I got married in um, 19 oh, sometime back in there and uh, 1980, I think, 79, and um, I just, I thought if anybody loved me, they were sick because I didn't like myself. And it was a real tumultuous relationship between me and my head and my poor husband. Um, I'd just freak him out by my behavior. I'd slap myself when I didn't like what I was doing right in front of them. And then I remembered I had my first baby in '80. I nursed the weight off. No big deal. And we're in college. My husband's got nine credits to go, and he's talking about dropping out. So when I got pregnant with the second baby, he's talking about dropping out of school, I ate my way up to 183 pounds, and I went into the hospital and had a 10-pound baby boy and came out weighing 183 pounds, and there's no math there. (laughs) You know, I ate my way through everything they put in front of me in the hospital except the baby. Um, and and then I was um, I had him in 82 And by 83 um, I knew there was nothing I could do Except go back to OA There, there was just Nope, nothing I could do um, Thank goodness this gal in San Francisco Had introduced it to me um, Five years before So I, I found I was living in Pendleton, Oregon And I found OA And I went September 12, 1983 And I bought my big book That's how come I know It's written in the front of my big book um, and then you got two little kids and a husband and I'm trying to cope and um, my husband was an accountant and I remember in the backyard one day hanging up clothes and the kids weren't doing what I wanted them to do so I thought I'm going in the house I'm going to do what I want to do which was eat and I'd been in OA for a little while and then I saw this timeline in front of me It's it's tax season. I could start abstaining come April 15th once he's, you know, not working so hard anymore. And then, well, I could wait till the kids were in college. It would be easy then. (laughs) (laughs) So I started at abstaining 4 o'clock that afternoon. You can start any time. And I I had a good period of abstinence then, but it's still – I'd do silly things like if the car was parked out in front facing the grocery store, I'd go get something to eat. If it was parked away from the grocery store, I wouldn't. And my abstinence was really fragile. Twelve grapes and I was abstaining, 13 and I was off and running. And I also, my favorite activity in all the world was reading and eating. Um, If I wanted to break my abstinence, I could open a novel. I'd read and eat in the bathtub. Um, it was just a given. And I had to give up reading novels for five years, break that. You know, people talk about throwing out their TVs because they have to break that that association. So I I'd, um, I'd gave up reading novels for five years and then... A friend of mine said, Well, do you think you could try it again? And I did. And it was okay. It wasn't, the connection wasn't there anymore. So I'm happy to say I can, I can read again. I don't usually read novels while I'm eating, it's just not a thing I do anymore. But um, I've, you've heard in, um, of people being um, dry drunk. And I have heard of stark raving abstinence. And it's not a pretty picture. I think I was probably that way early on where I was really, really, really rigid. It had to be exactly this, like the, the 12 grapes versus the 13 grapes. And I moved to from Pendleton, Oregon to Klamath Falls. And, you know, geographic's a great way to start. I got a sponsor. I started making phone calls. We had two meetings a week. They were small, but we had a babysitter that was we needed that. Several of us had little kids, so we had a babysitter. Um, and I started going to retreats and um, some conventions up in Oregon. Uh, we had speakers come, uh, marathon speakers, who were up near Eugene, Oregon, where the where they were had, had good retreats and good recovery. And this one gal had two little kids, and she said she'd go to weekends in OA, and her kids would still be alive when she got home. Her <laughs> husband would still be alive. The dishes might be in the sink. But the family didn't die because she took the money away from them. So I started making myself available to OA wherever I went. Um, retreats, marathons, meetings. And so we started a, an intergroup back in those days, and we started having retreats up in the um, between Klamath Falls and Medford, Oregon, because that's where our intergroup was. And we had um, a gal come to the retreat one year, the retreat leader, and her theme was, what, what is my part in this? What am I bringing to this? And um, I've been upstanding ever since. That um, was September 30th, 1989. Somehow they talk in the big book about um, building an arch that we can walk through, and I think the keystone is willingness. The keystone fell into place. And she also talked about three meals a day, healthy eating 80% of the time. I. You know, and I go into the kitchen looking for a solution that's not food because I'm just freaking out about something. But it's so amazing how my head got turned around. Thank you, higher power. So I looked up sobriety, emotional sobriety online, and I found some really neat information. Sobriety synonyms are dignity, level-headedness, common sense, pragmatism, practicality, self-control, self-restraint, Hello, this is a good way to live. Um, a level of mental health, a good level of mental health. Although one time at one of these conventions, I heard somebody say, you're never going to win a blue ribbon for mental health at the county fair. Lower the bar. <laughs> hey, you got to live with, what, with who you are to live a balanced life. Um, Maladaptive coping mechanisms to deal with life is how I did it before. Like I said, food was my coping tool. I felt bad, I'd eat. I felt good, I'd eat. I I felt anything and I'd eat. You feel feel better when you eat. Um, And I've heard in program, when you get abstinence, you feel better, Um, which is not always fun. But we've got tools, we've got friends, we've got support, we have the literature i got to deal with it. So I, people who are emotionally sober have developed effective coping strategies. Wow. Um, some of the worst decisions I've made in abstinence I've made on my own. <laughs> Just gone over the edge and um, threw my 15-year-old year son out of the house because he woke me up in the middle of the night making a phone call because he wasn't going to come home that evening so I threw him out and um, I felt really badly about that I knew he had a place to go I knew his this other family would pick him up because they had told me they'd love to have him for a son okay he's yours <laughs> be careful what you wish for <laughs> living an ethical life trying not to harm other people I do that uh, my head will tell me what I think you should do what my, I should, what my partner should do and Jim's his own man You know he doesn't I don't look good when I'm telling him what to do. I don't feel good when I'm telling him what to do. I'm wasting my breath. I'm blowing my street creds. You know, I've got to back off, let him make his own decisions. Um, behaving ethically is good for mental health. It's not just the right thing to do. I sleep better at night when I'm not having to wake up in the middle of the night going, Oh, I said that. Oh, I should have said that. Uh, it's, you know, it's all about sleep and being able to. Sobriety includes repairing old relationships and building new ones. Now, the whole premise, I think, of of the recovery program is to have healthy relationships with myself, with you, with my partner, with higher power, with the whole universe. Um, If I'm busy focusing on my negative aspects or your negative aspects, it's not healthy. It's not good. Thank you. Feeling useful is necessary for good self-esteem. And that's one of the promises of the ninth step, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. You know, I'm I'm not just focused on myself and my navel and my problems anymore. Um, I went to therapy for a while, and she says, when you're busy sitting there looking at your fat thighs, you don't see anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Get over it. You know, I'm 65 years old. I got a woman's thighs, and that's the way it's gonna be. Um, finding meaning, um, giving it away, being useful. Um, I have a job where I'm useful, and I thank God I have. A, I'm useful to other people. And when I start getting into one of my, why is she doing that, or why didn't they do that? I have to kind of back off, calm down. You know, write the snarky email, but don't send it. <laughs> I've heard – one time I heard in one of these conventions um, her recovery meant not giving snappy answers to stupid questions. (laughs) It's it's a good way to go through life. You know, you're not making people feel small. I'm not making people feel small. So anyway, there's no balance. This has a – the new second edition does have an appendix in the back, which is nice, but I've got to add to it. It's got emotional balance. But it doesn't have balance. Anyway, I'll start having to add stuff like that. Um, And I couldn't find any of my nice underlinings about balance because they're all in the other edition. But um, in June 6th in Voices for Today, it talks about, with the help from the OA program and my higher power, I learned I can accept others as they are. I learned that I am not a victim to life. I can care for and be responsible for myself and my thinking. I can consciously choose positive thoughts and decisions that enable me to act on life one day at a time. That's all we need. Any time that my food obsession returns, or any other obsession, it is a sign for me that I need to look at my reactions to people and things. I need to willingly take responsibility for my part and for my happiness. I need to own my own power and to take action. Today I follow the steps and act on life. Um, And it's a... What a wonderful way to live. It's so much fun. My mind still goes nah, 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 sometimes, and I just, the mind's a wonderful thing. It's so malleable. You just keep packing your suitcase, you just keep driving down the road, and the mind kind of backs off and goes, Oh, we're okay. Okay, it's okay. We can do this. Um, we're lucky that way because our minds will follow what we're doing. You can't think yourself into right acting, you have to act yourself into right thinking. Do esteemable things and act like you're calm, act like you're in recovery. Um, And the mind kind of just goes, okay, that's where we are. Anyway, I'm Carol and I'm a compulsive overeater. I have cards if you want my phone number, um, and I will end my session.
0: Thank you, Carol. Our next speaker this morning on emotional sobriety, please welcome Linda from Oakland.
2: Hi, I'm Linda. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. Hi. Uh, I would just like to say that applause was not quite loud enough, and I feel abandoned. Thank um, <laughs> you. And the thing is, actually, is that is true a little bit. Um, So I carry that with me. And today, instead of beating myself up about that, I'm going to have compassion for myself. Because that's hard, right? Um, I am going to pass some pictures around. um, And they're annotated on the back. Um, First one is of me when I was a little girl. Oh, and I'm going to completely cry and tear up um, probably this entire time. Um, a couple are from when I was in high school. Um, then we have ones when I was first in OA in my mid twenties, in the um, mid eighties, and then we have uh, pictures of uh, myself during my twenty uh, five year relapse, and the ones in that where I'm heavy um, were probably about two years or so before I came into the program, and. Um, I'm also going to pass something else around. It might not make it all the way around, but I'm going to talk about it at the end. And it's a little bookmark I made with um, a clip art little picture of um, a little girl doing yoga. Um, and this means a lot to me, and I'll talk about why. Um. I signed up to speak about emotional sobriety and then I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Um, Because I have a lot of emotional difficulties um, to this day that get in my way. And I'm sorry, I also wanted to say that I decided sitting right there that um, I want to give a bit of disclaimer. Um, I'm going to speak about things that might be somewhat controversial, I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to say a few words about therapy, I'm going to say a few words about mental illness and perhaps most uncomfortably, but I've decided it's from the right place, I'm going to talk a little bit actually about my body. Um, so I want to give you guys a heads up. Um, the timing, is it 5, five, five and 5? Five? You know, yeah, I can do that. One. Oh, thank you. And, and then 5 and 5. Alright, um, thank you. Um, can we do five, 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 and 5, 5 and 5? Yeah, you just actually said you would do that, thank you. Um, I spoke on the sixth step in a meeting a little while ago and I decided to contextualize it within the question of why. Why? Why am I here both in OA and also on this earth? What the hell am I doing? And my answer to that I realize is that um, I'm here to come into my true self. that, um, That I worked to annihilate for 49 years. I tried to annihilate myself. And um, when I hear people talk about how, like, oh, well, food, you know, at least it's not alcohol, at least it's not drugs. I certainly understand what people are saying. And I don't mean to disparage what other people are saying. But I think about that lately. When people say that, I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know heart disease, this is the other thing that might be an outside issue, you know, heart disease, diabetes, um, increased cancer rates, you know, all these things having to do with extra weight and unhealthy eating. You know, I'm not so sure that it's less serious, Um, plus, of course, the depression and the whatever and the damaged relationships. Um, And thinking about, um, by the way, I've been in for five years almost exactly, um... I was a fat bulimic. I two different times of my life. I was um, – one time I was um, 100 – actually, I'm a, almost a 100-pounder, probably like a 95-pounder. I was over 200 pounds. When it came in, I was about 195 pounds, throwing up several times a week. So that kind of gives you a sense of how much I was eating. I was a huge binger. I was the type of binger who would go to the grocery store and obsess about the perfect binge. What can I buy so I will feel better? This kind of cookie or that kind of cookie? This kind of ice cream or that kind of ice cream? And I would get all kinds of different foods in those categories. And I would go home. I would get off work early. So I was alone. My husband was at work. And I would watch TV. Kind of. And when I think of it, I think of like I was, um, you know, this is just five years ago, I um It was like I was enveloped by these foods that I had around me. It was like a security. It was like a fort. Um, And I would often throw up and then eat more. Um, It's really hard for me to stay focused. Um, The last thing I'll kind of say about this, whatever I'm talking about, is that um, part of what happened to me in the 25 years of relapse um, between when I left OA in the late 80s because my friendships fell apart, I had put personalities before principles, and I was in relapse for 25 years. One of the things that happened is I developed type 2 diabetes. So I have type 2 diabetes, and um, diabetes never goes away. A lot of people think that it does. I control it now through diet. I'm lucky that I don't have to take any medication, let alone insulin, that may or may not continue. And if I understand diabetes correctly, although it is well-controlled – my organs are still being damaged well controlled means abnormal levels of glucose um, higher than non-diabetics and that's just a fact and it stresses the body. Um, So I could look however I want to look and that is the reality of what goes on in my body and that's a result of this disease. And um, of course I had the genetic predisposition but It wouldn't have happened if I wasn't eating tons of sugar and was so overweight. Um, I grew up in a home where um, I had a narcissistic mother who also was a really great person in a lot of ways but it was all about her and her feelings and if she was angry she let it loose and it was all about her all the time and I really retreated and I retreated into food quite early. There was no room for me and um, my mom was 40 when she had me and I always liked to, I was not planned and they weren't interested in me. And I always say that, um, I think their attitude about me was they expected me. It's like, I popped out fully formed. It's like, okay, she's fine now. She's on her own. So I always felt like I should be fine. And this is an important point in terms of my emotional sobriety. And I wasn't fine. And the rage and the sense of abandonment and the fear and the loneliness of like there's something wrong with me, but everybody says I'm okay, I looked good, I got straight A 's, I could usually conduct myself well in public. There was that disconnect, and I grew up um, incapable of a lot of things and and still incapable of a lot of things. Um, I worked at Starbucks for seven years. Um, just recently, I left two years ago, and um, yeah, I'm very bright. I have a graduate degree. And um, I left after I got my paralegal certificate. And um, I worked in law offices for a couple years. Um, but now it's two years later, and I have a new job. So I worked at Starbucks for seven years. You want to know where I work now? I work at Pete's. <laughs> and that is a true fact, as opposed to a false fact. Um, See, I'm smart. I understand when I'm being redundant. Um, So, um, to me, the 12 steps is about emotional recovery. And if you think of the principles associated with the steps, right? It's, you know, honesty, faith, humility, service, perseverance. What is all of that other than emotional sobriety? And what I said before as to like why am I here to come into my true self, um, I feel like my true self, and that's why the first pictures of that of that adorable little girl I feel like that my true self is that adorable little girl who is full of love and adventure and excitement who I again and I feel clearly obviously because of the way I'm speaking of it, you can tell, I feel very strongly about the fact that I tried to annihilate that little girl i shoved her full of food in the most damaging way threw up lay in bed depressed so this is where i came from in terms of emotion right i learned how to behave emotionally from my narcissistic emotionally completely uncontained mother um rage attacks um anxiety that caused me to like share my anxiety with everybody else but I'm not like that at all anymore I'm sure you can tell by my personality um just just yesterday or the day before yesterday at Pete's it was very busy and I felt like I was being kind of my normal self and one of my coworkers says to me you need to take a few deep breaths and I was so surprised because I was in my natural state and I know I come back um you know and that's you know that's just the truth Of kind of the way I can be and I work on it and then beyond that if people have a hard time with me then that's their problem but I do work to behave in a way that doesn't make me feel bad about myself and is respectful to other people because I have been very much like my mother and just bulldozing through life um I just was telling um, my fellow who I drove up with, it was just normal for me for most of my life to be rude to salespeople. And this is interesting for somebody who's worked in the service industry for most of my life. Um, Rude, difficult. Just recently, um, I did not get a job at uh, Trader Joe's that I wanted because they remembered that I threw a rage attack. No, that's not true. That I was cold and icy and rude when they were trying to help me. Um, And this was, you know, a handful of months ago. So I have significant emotional problems. And um, I feel shame about them, but more lately I feel compassion. And I work extremely hard at them. Um, When I told my sponsor, oh, my God, I'm talking about emotional sobriety and I'm an emotional mess, she said, you have a lot to share and you work hard at it. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, I didn't take it that way, but now that you guys laugh, I see... (laughs) But actually, that is a good part of what she meant. Um, I'm just going to kind of, um, so rage, anxiety, lack of respect for other people and their rights. um, Having my husband go to weddings and family functions by himself because I was in bed depressed and hostile after binging. Um, My mother-in-law went out of her way to get me an invitation to a family friend's kid's wedding. Didn't go. And she was pissed. And I certainly made amends to her. Um, Just checking out. um, Just really behaving inappropriately and not getting it. I had a temp job. This was years ago, but I was an adult. I probably was 27, 28. And I had a temp job. And I went and I sat down at the reception desk in this place and started putting on my makeup. And then the next day, they didn't want me back at that job, and I didn't understand why. And the temp agency said, well, you're sitting there putting on your makeup. And I was like, oh, so what? And it wasn't until like 10 years later, I was like, oh, that's not appropriate behavior. Um, so I got into therapy two years ago, and the reason I did is we were at a Mother's Day brunch two years ago, three years in recovery, right? Um, And my sister-in-law and brother-in-law hurt my feelings because I felt like they disregarded me. And um, I kind of threw a hissy fit at Mother's Day brunch. And then I started with self-recrimination and horrible crying and didn't go to the museum, which was the next step in the Mother's Day celebration that my mother-in-law, I love my in-laws dearly. um, (laughs) They've taken me in. And um, so I didn't go to the museum. And um, that was two years ago. And the difference for me now, as opposed to before recovery, is I had that incident and I said, fuck that. I am done. I don't want to live like that anymore. So I went and saw our couples counselor. Um, and he said, go into individual therapy. See this guy. Um, so this is the part where I talk about therapy. And I'm going to try to be brief. So I go to this therapist. And um, I'm in the waiting room of the first session. Um, at the time, I was 52 years old. I'm 54 now because it was two years ago. See, I told you I was smart. Um, I love being f- funny. Thank you for laughing, so I don't feel disregarded. Um, I'm Jewish, and my family's from New York, so I kind of grew up with the shtick. Um, So um, I'm in the waiting room, and this man comes out. He's like, are you Linda? And I look at him, and I was like. And I walk into his office, and I say to him, Paul was the name of our couples counselor who referred me. And I said, Paul didn't tell me you were 20. And he says to me in his incredibly empathetic, gentle, loving way, he says, well, would it help if I told you how old I really was? And I was like, And he says, I'm 36. And I'm like, really? Like, that's supposed to make me feel better at my therapist, is this 36-year-old man. And I said to him, I didn't really think you were 20. Um, and then the next thing I said to him was, you're kind of cute. I'm really not sure this is going to work. And he said, well, you know, this is consultation. So what happened, and I will make it brief, um, he's been a huge amount of my recovery um, because – I totally fell in love with him, and I still love him. And I would like to point out that my husband knows about all of this. Um, He does. And therapy love is not normal, real love. Um, I fall in love with this man because he's a great therapist. He's been there for me. Um, And he has led me to, in a lot of ways. It started with recovery, undoubtedly. Um, He has led me to my true self. He has led me to this little girl who lives in here. Um, I feel it in my solar plexus. I feel the loneliness, I feel the sadness, I feel the abandonment. And this is also, and this was a huge epiphany my first therapy session. That's the same place where the love, the awe, the gentleness, the vulnerability lives. I can't have one without the other. And that's what I worked so hard to violently annihilate my entire life, right? just right above my stump It's the same place stuff it down stuff it down and it makes me so sad so I kind of got in touch with that and the fact that he was this like beautiful now 38 because two years ago 36 plus 2 is 38 um, man it it helped and he said this to me he said it's accelerating our you know therapeutic relationship the fact that you you know think I'm so attractive and kind of love me Um, and it's it's opened my heart to him more in a way that became nothing about the fact that he's this lovely 38-year-old man. It became about the fact that I feel safe, I am getting nurturance, and that little girl is getting what she needs in a lot of ways. Um, And um, it's really kind of helped me open my heart Um, And that's been really, really helpful. So I've come back to my program kind of being in that different place, able to have more compassion for myself, able to realize, yeah, I still have some rage. Um, You mentioned self-harming. I hit myself in the head at times so hard that um, I I have bruises on the side of my head. I used to do that about once a month. Um, Now I do it maybe once every six months. Um, And that... I mean, it's sad I do that. It's really sad. But I feel so grateful. Um, I have rage attacks 5% of the time that I used to. Um, I approach people in stores with love and an open heart. Again, 97% of the time. Um, I believe in the principles of this program. And I work the steps to the degree that I do, and I have step inferiority complex, but I do work the steps, um, as a way to hook into, you know, I grew up with the principles of rage, entitlement, self-pity, isolation, and I'm like, okay, there are those. I tried those. Those didn't work that well. How about honesty, faith, hope, (laughs) you know, all that stuff, perseverance, the other things in the middle, I don't remember offhand. I'm going to try this. And that's how I go forward. And I have a lot of work to do. You know, the, you know, the reason I'm in Pete's now is that I don't really you know, have a lot of issues around self-actualization um, that have really been difficult. And um, I only have a couple of minutes yet left, so I'm going to talk about my body. Um, I lost a lot of weight. And one of the things that kind of – and this to me is part of not of my own will – um, I kind of ended up in yoga, and um, I am like really strong, and and I have, and um, this to me is so meaningful beyond the way that I look, and I love the way I look, I mean let's be honest, um, but I do these really hard poses, I go back to yoga no matter what, I stayed in yoga when I totally sucked at the beginning like anyone would, and I kept going, I kept going, and all of a sudden I'm doing these poses and things I never thought I could do. And it has been a metaphor for me. I hope to go to graduate school to become a therapist, (laughs) which feels like what I always should have done so somebody can fall in love with me. No. And these are miracles. And my husband, um, the other night, we were at dinner, and um, my brother-in-law's girlfriend, who if he doesn't propose to her soon, the whole family's going to freak out. Um, But I love her. And she is in graduate school to be a therapist. And she was talking about it. And I looked at my husband. I said, oh, that'll be me soon. Not really. Because there are all these roadblocks to me being a therapist. I may or may not be able to get their money, other stuff, the fact that I don't know if I'm disciplined enough to do the work. Um, I, I said, well, not really. And he goes... We've been together 14 years, so I know him very well, obviously. And he's wonderful. He has been, I can't even talk about it. And I love him more than I love my therapist. Um, (laughs) And my husband looks at me, and he goes like this. He goes, and the people in the back, I don't even know if you can see. It was the most subtle, intense look in his eye and the most almost imperceptible nod. And I looked at him and I said, are you saying that you think that I'm going to be in graduate school? (laughs) And he said, I do think that. And he's the one who sees me procrastinate. He's the one who sees that I can't clean the house. He's the one who sees me with my ADHD. There's the mental health part, although I have another diagnosis as well. Um, You know, kind of have a hard time figuring out what the fuck I'm doing. And he still believes I can do it and that we'll be able to cope financially. It just is an amazing thing. Um, And I, I love this program. I love my sponsor. My sponsor has stayed with me for five years and um, leads me back to the steps, leads me to self-love, leads me to, I don't know, she's just been unbelievable. And, um, I guess the last thing I'll say, and I don't know if this is about emotional sobriety, whatever, but um, the last thing I'll say is, oh, for those of you who've seen the bookmark of the little yoga girl, um, I, the clip art from that bookmark and a lot of other kind of collage stuff that all of a sudden this creativity bubbled up, I was making collages, um, I stole those from my last job, the clip art. So you know how expensive color toner is. So I have an immense to make to them. Okay. So, I'm um, no, seriously. <laughs> Um, that I got fired twice in a row, which is why I'm a peace, whatever. So I have a lot of work to do. Um, I feel like I'm that little yoga girl because of the miracle that I'm doing yoga. And there's my little girl. Um, so that little bookmark means a lot to me, even though it's made from stolen stuff. Um, and lastly, I'll say, I was packing my snacks this morning, because I'm done, and I was packing some strawberries in a bag. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm packing strawberries and a hard-boiled egg for my snacks. And I just take it for granted that this is how I feed myself now. And what a miracle. And um, I will never leave this program. I left 25 years. It didn't work well. So keep coming back no matter what. So thank you.
0: for our third speaker on emotional sobriety this morning, Julie from San Jose. Welcome, Julie.
3: <sighs> I'm Julie, I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Julie. I haven't been under the influence of chocolate since April 3rd, 1993. <laughs> That's my drug of choice, my gateway drug to other compulsive overeater, eating behaviors. And it is um, what I pick up my chip for, is that milestone. I sat in my first meeting in San Jose, it was huge. It was probably more people than are in here today. And um, my higher power whispered in my ear that if I'm going to be a member of this fellowship, I have no business eating chocolate. And it's like, okay, I didn't even argue. It was just the way it was going to be, and I didn't know exactly who I was going to be without M and M's. But there it was. And um, my journey of recovery has been amazing. I've never gone away. My food plan has evolved over time. I have gained weight and lost weight in program. I feel that at this point in my life, I'm at a I'm I'm abstinent in the sense that I have achieved and am maintaining a healthy body weight. And there, I think there's a speech later this afternoon about sanity versus vanity, I need to go there. Because I always would like to just lose just a couple more pounds. And what difference is it going to make? What difference is it going to make? So I have spent, since I knew I was going to talk on this subject, and that I was intensely qualified to talk on this subject, um, churning and reading and... Writing, I've got pages and pages of notes here that I probably won't refer to. Um, And I've come to realize that I'm I'm holding up the Alcoholics Anonymous book with the circus cover on it. Uh I picked up this cover at the 1995 World AA Convention that I attended with my husband. And... I've got the 12 steps and 12 traditions of AA. I think you could randomly flip to any page in either of these books and the AA books, or OA books probably, and there will be something about emotional recovery in in the literature. It's everywhere. Emotional recovery is that third leg of the stool we all keep hearing about. We talk about physical recovery in terms of achieving and maintaining a healthy body weight and relieving our bodies of the diseases that are caused by being overweight. Or other behaviors that we do as compulsive overeaters. I mean, binging and purging is not a good idea physically. those of us who have experienced anorexia. Not a good idea. It hurts us. And we do things to hurt ourselves. And that's where, in my thing, it's like compulsive overeating. How could that be an addiction? Compulsive overeating is an addiction. Sugar, flour, um, other substances that trigger us is addiction. And I, my definition of addiction is to continue doing something even when you don't want to do it even when you know the consequences are going to be horrendous and you can't not do it that's what brought me into program I was eating food I've damaged my whole digestive system over years of compulsive overeating and I was eating food And it was hurting me, and I couldn't not eat it. And then my second husband, who we were dating at the time, he has a long-term participation in another 12-step program. And everywhere we went in the Silicon Valley, there are millions of people there. We would go to big music festivals and art and wine festivals and all over the place and everywhere we went he met somebody that he knew and he was getting handshakes and hugs and how are yous. And I wanted that. I wanted that benefit of being in this program because I was lonely. So starting back at the beginning, is in terms of what it was like for me. I like to start my shares usually with saying that I was born with an eating disorder. I was colicky. And the stories were that my mom had to make double batches of formula because I always puked up the first one. I was colicky. And at that time in our history, in 1952, you do the math. I'm an English major. (laughs) At, at that time, in the place where I was born in upstate rural New York, formula was made out of evaporated milk, water, and caro syrup. And I had colic and I projectile vomited every first bottle and they fed me again. I was in pain. I cried all the time. Plus, I was the first of seven kids. My mother's labor and delivery was long and traumatic. I came out totally with a misshapen head. So she told the story about how the bonnet my aunt made her rip out and re because the gauge was wrong would have fit after all. From the moment I was born, they called me the ugly baby. I was the ugly baby. They told ugly baby stories my whole life right in front of me. They told the story about how when they put me in the playpen with the kid next door, he always wanted to pull my ugly hair. They told stories about how they called me Eddie Cantor because I had this tiny little face and big, giant blue eyes. And then when I was 12 years old, And My mother brought home my youngest sister. I'm the oldest of seven. My beloved Aunt Eleanor, right in front of me, told my mother, the more you have, the cuter they get. So I grew up knowing I was ugly, knowing that I would never, ever, you know, have a relationship. When I was, you know, you know, reading fairy tales when I was a kid and stuff, I knew that if I got three wishes, my first wish would be to be pretty. I knew that. I was terribly, terribly um, isolated. I did it to myself. I sucked my thumb until I was 12. And I read books, and I sucked my thumb. When I finally quit doing that, my grandmother gave me one of my prized possessions. It's a little crystal dish with a pewter lid. It's Victorian. It's beautiful, and I love it. And I love it because it was from her. Now I'm going to start <laughs> leaking. So, all through school, and I was okay. So another piece of this the story is that I was raised devoutly Catholic. And I don't feel that I suffered for it particularly, but that was part of my story, and I don't practice anymore. Um, Part of my program was that I found a higher power of my understanding that helps me, it works with me. So, and I was pretty smart when I was a kid. I wasn't the smartest one in the class, but I was pretty smart. I was smart enough. And, um... So my goal in life, since I probably wasn't going to get married and have kids and stuff like that, I wasn't going to be a supermodel, that's for sure, was to be good and right. (laughs) And I took those two things to the extreme. And I was a crybaby. If somebody pointed out that I wasn't good or right i dissolved i was a mess i think probably most of my life in adolescence i was depressed and back there back then in upstate new york you didn't talk about mental illness and you didn't go to psychiatrists but my parents had to take me to a psychiatrist when i was in 5th grade because the teacher of my fifth grade class said that because I was still sucking my thumb, there was something wrong with me. Well, Yeah, there was, but not anything my parents could acknowledge. But anyway, the psychiatrist sent a note home to that teacher and told her to leave me alone. So, anyway, I quit, finally. It's a good thing. So, um... What happened? I mean it was there was just it was horrible i don't even know how I managed to get here um, I, I got married. how did that happen? I got married, and I knew it was wrong, but i didn't think I'd have any other chances. He was already alcoholic. I grew up in a family of alcoholics. I knew it was bad. he was so drunk the night of the rehearsal party he was laying down on the grass, and I guy I went through with it i didn't. Anyway, so that wasn't very fun, and I I continued to be a crybaby. Every confrontation, I would just dissolve into hysterics. I was so frustrated I couldn't get across, and I don't know if you've ever lived with or um, had a relationship with an alcoholic, but they can make you feel blankety blank crazy. When I read the second step and that a higher power could restore me to sanity. It's like, all right. I need that. So um, I finally got out of that relationship. I have a child, also born in 1982. And he was a mess. He had severe ADHD. And it kicked in at about 18 months old. And he barely made it through eighth grade. And in, um, when he was about 14, and my, my marriage had already fallen apart, we had to send him to a special program for at-risk youth in Maryland. I took my 14-year-old son and left him in the woods in Maryland. And I thought I might die. I went to therapy at that point. I've been in therapy off and on several times during my life to deal with stuff. And, and severe and honest to God, depression. And I had to take medication, and I went to therapy. I had to go to therapy when um, Tom was in this program to deal with the grief and the guilt. And here's somebody who is going to be good and right, no matter what, and I failed the mommy test. And I was a mess. And I was in therapy at one session, and I'm in program. I'm working the steps all this time. This is in the background. And I'm telling her a story about how I would write my son like several times a week. And I'd get a card back from him, and it would say, please tell Dad to write to me well, I was still self-righteous and indignant about my, my husband, my ex-husband. And I'm just a blithering idiot, a hysterical mess, talking about my... And my therapist looks at me and says, does that remind you of any relationships in your, in your experience? It's like, what? I, I, I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> wait. It's my relationship with my father. And I learned at that point that I was projecting my feelings onto my son's situation. And I was able to detach his relationship with his father from my relationship to my father. And that was huge. Up until then, if you were telling me a story and you cried, I cried. And I thought it was because I was so empathetic. No, I was carrying so much pain that anybody else's pain triggered my tears. And I, I, I was like that. I can listen to you now, and you can be really sad. And I can listen to you and not be in my own stuff. Talk about self-centered. Self-centered. Another thing I learned through therapy, so here I am, the ugly baby, and I got into program, and I started dancing. I started going to international folk dancing with a program friend. And I met other people. I started contra dancing. I started going to um, vintage ballroom dancing, and I got a lot of attention. And I never ever expected this. I'm already in my, you know, headed towards my second marriage. I'm living with my boyfriend at the time. Well, I um, I had a little too much fun going contra-dancing. And I ended up hurting my husband very, very badly. And um, I went to therapy for that because I, I was having trouble letting go of my own grief. I did it. I hurt him. And yet I'm all upset about what I need to let go of in order to make it right. And I'm I'm telling my stories to this therapist, and she helped me see that I was telling myself stories and reacting to my own stories. I was telling myself stories and making myself scared or sad, and I realized I'd been doing it all my life. So I'm almost out of time, and I had a lot more to say, but i got to stop now. But the one thing I want to read from the big book is on page 134. This is the crux of my program. It's the crux of my recovery. And it says, it's from the family afterwards, right? We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears though it was once that just for just that for many of us but it is clear that we made our own misery god didn't do it here's my motto avoid then The Deliberate Manufacture of Misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. So my story has been a lot of discovery um, in terms of emotional sobriety. And again, the the literature is full of it. I wanted to just, if I have a... three more minutes good I can read this one thing this is from the letter that was quoted um, at the beginning of the session and it's uh, Bill Wilson's letter to a friend that was published in the grapevine in 1958 and I have like I have like tabs that I was gonna read you all this time so what and um, it's it Bill suffered from depression, off and on, serious depression. And he says, then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been. I, didn't, I never wanted to be wrong. I was wrong. But still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result and so into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotic's problem. It's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all our affairs. Thank you for listening.
0: Let's thank all three of our panelists again. They did a great job this morning. Thank you. Okay, so we do have some time for three minute shares. Um, When I was at a meeting the other day, they said, and everyone who wants to share, just line up here on the left, but you know, no one lined up. So if, um, um, because it is a little different, if you want to come up and share, we would really appreciate that, and we ask that you sign a a release form when you're done with your three-minute share. So would anyone like to share with us this morning? Thank you.
4: Hi, my name's Ian. And there's two things I want to tell you about myself, one of which you'll probably under- know, and one of which may come as a total surprise, even to my friends. The one that you should know is that I am a compulsive overreader. But as I said, that was probably no surprise. The one that probably is going to be a surprise is that I am a very angry person. And uh, a lot of my friends probably didn't know that. I hope. Um... I have tried to deal with my anger in so many different ways uh, through program. Uh, I've I've survived a John Bradshaw weekend, and I got the teddy bear to prove it. Um, I've done couples therapy. I've done uh, marriage guidance. I've done RCA, uh, Recovering Couples Anonymous, if you know what that is. And I've done um, CODA and a whole bunch of other stuff. And the one, uh, one problem that I found with all of these is that I knew I had a knee-jerk reaction to the things that went wrong. And that was to snap out, to be sarcastic, to put you down, to be, to shout at you, to say how stupid you were, and you know all those kind of things. And it really affected my marriage and it affected my job. And I knew I had to do something about it, and I couldn't figure out what... So I eventually I went to the doctor and he's, he uh, suggested a, uh, a magic pill uh, which I've been taking for a while now and uh, it started giving me I took two take two pills in the morning and it started I started getting headaches migraines dizziness double vision nausea and that was a side effect of those pills so he said well take one in the morning one in the in one just before you go to bed that way you'll still have all the benefits but there's, uh, you'll sleep through half of the side effects. <laughs> and that's true, and it's been working. But what it's done for me is um, not only has it given me that split second to think about what I'm going to say before I say it, the knee-jerk reaction to anything now has totally changed. And instead of putting you down... I can give you time, I can be happy for you, I can chat to you, You know all the kind of things that I couldn't do before. Um, and so when I say that I am a very angry person, I'm not anymore. My, my job is getting a lot better, my relationship with my wife is doing remarkably well. Um, and even although I did it through better living through chemistry, um, I... I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been in program because I wouldn't have thought I was worthy of, of, of needing it. So, programs help me do it. Um, I just want to continue doing what I'm doing. So, thank you. Thank
0: you. Next. There's a pin down
1: here.
5: Uh, I'm Luann. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, June 1st was my two-year uh, Anna, uh, birthday for abstinence. And uh, thank you. My, my, my hook is that I always had relationship problems, and I used food as my solution. And um, I related to each of your guys' stories different parts and I'm so overwhelmed with the emotion I can't even remember them all uh, but I was a big crybaby big crybaby and I grew up uh, with my mom and dad being uh, joking about all that uh, uh, like like I would they'd leave for the weekend and then I would have to pick up the dog poop while they were gone and they and I didn't you know I was in high school and you know I'd be like well we can't trust you with shit well, it's like, I mean, it's funny now, yeah, but I was so sensitive, it was like, oh my god, I'm useless, I'm worthless, so, um, yeah, so that's my, you know, I couldn't, I can't spell my way out of a paper sack, that's what I heard all these years, I, you know, I'm a horrible speller, you know, go look up, you know, mom, how do you spell this, well, you can't spell your way out of sack. Go look it up in a dictionary. Well, how can I look it up in a dictionary if I don't know how to spell it? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Anyways, uh, the cool thing is about this program is um, when I walked into these rooms, I knew food wasn't my issue. I knew it was uh, deeper than that. So I've actually spent the last two years in my program working on my emotional sobriety and not so much on my food. I, I, I walked in knowing that uh, flour and sugar was my uh, uh, drug of choice. So I, was, I stopped that, but everything was, you know, that was it. I didn't do anything else with my food plan. I just stopped eating sugar and flour, and I, I lost 40-plus uh, pounds, and these last two years have been wonderful working on my emotional sobriety because my food automatically just fell into place because I didn't have, I knew it wasn't about the food. I didn't have to go to food for my solution anymore. Um, not to say that's not my first thought, but, you know, I know it's the steps. I have a great sponsor who's worked with me really hard over the past year. I've had three sponsors, and the last one's lasted a year and a half, and hopefully forever because I love her, and she's been so patient with me. And, and, and digging, we always call it going into the weeds and div- digging into uh, diving into the deep end. Of the pool, so and um, I love that. I love diving into the because I want to know why I'm eating, because that's that's really where the problem is, is that in my relationships because I'm so self-centered and I don't know how to do them um, very well. So, um, so thank you for sharing and thank you guys for your stories. I really am grateful to hear. Excuse me.
0: Back the timer. Thank you. Let's thank everyone again. Thank you. If you enjoyed this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the All-Star Media Table and order copies of this session or any other sessions. And I please help me. I need one last, the last person who spoke. Did she leave? She right in front of me. I've got to track her down. Oh, oh, you're right there. There you are. Okay, good. Please come up and sign after so we can, so we can help uh, All-Star Media Table uh, provide copies of this session. Um, all the uh, workshops and main speaker events are being recorded and are available on CD or as an electronic download. So now we'd like uh, everyone to stand and join hands and please close with the third step prayer. You'll find that on page uh, 8 of your program. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's the the, circle. the giant circle.
5: there we
0: go. God. I, offer, I myself offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou wilt.
1: Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties, so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy
2: power, thy
1: love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. Keep coming back, it works.